and welcome to the Hoon on the Kaka. I am Bernard Hickey. We have Peter Bale with us. I'm Hi, back. Bernard. My teeth are in good shape. Um, really looking forward to this hour because we have a very special guest. Please, um, Peter, introduce our special guest from the other side of the world. So this is a lovely friend of mine and very interesting friend of mine, David Satter, uh, who is the uh, was the first journalist since the Civil War to be expelled sorry the cold war right possibly since the civil war <laughs> but the cold war to be expelled from uh, from moscow um and i've asked david to come in partly because his titles always are the best and most amusing and interesting uh book titles um one of one of them is uh the less you know the better you'll sleep which is his book about vladimir putin which we'll talk about and my other favorite one which is an extraordinary book and i have read i have read both of these uh, is it was a long time ago and it never happened anyway. And, but those titles as kind of lovely Russian, um, Russian phrases get to some of the essence of what, uh, what David uh, analyzes. So we thought, uh, having had Professor David Patman, that we could have another but much more intelligent grey-haired journalist come on and talk to us about um, Putin, what the next movements might be. And for those of us who think I'm always promoting what else I do, I have interviewed David and intend to uh, publish an interview with him in my new my north and south column, which uh, will be going coming out. Uh, I think that one will be in, will be in May. So so that's a um, that's a that's a lead in for that. David, welcome to welcome to the Kaka. Glad to be here. Uh, glad to be communicating with New Zealand. And, well, thank you. Uh, yeah. So with the country, the, I very much would like to visit someday. Well, when we make enough money out of this podcast, we might be able to fly you over business class. Now, the that um, would be that would be wonderful. Even yeah, exactly. Non business exactly. class, just yeah. to uh, see the Peter beauty will, of Peter. Peter will give me New his Zealand. credit card number. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> Bernard has created this thing called the Kaka, and the Kaka is a very stylish, um, rather aggressive New Zealand parrot, and apparently the collective of um, Kaka's getting together is called a hoon. And so he's called this um, ridiculous podcast a hoon. And you have right now 65 other people who've been mad enough to come in and watch it recorded live, and then Bernard will put it out tomorrow. So David, you've looked at Putin as much as almost anybody else I know. And certainly you've, you've, you know, you've, you've uh, worn his t-shirt, read the book and spent the time in Moscow to understand where he's come from. I asked you this the other day, and I think it'd be really valuable to, um, uh, tell this audience what kind of man, in essence, Putin is. Well, I mean, I can tell you what I think for, based on. First of yes. all, I've never met. Yes, I'm not I've saying you're a psychiatrist, met. but you know that. Would yeah, be and too. you know, it's always dangerous to uh, uh, you know analyze a patient without uh, seeing him. And uh, I've never. Uh, never had a in you know in person contact. Of course, I followed his career, but I do know the Soviet Union and I do know Russia and I know the type of person he is, and I have little doubt that in fact this is more or less a typical product of the Soviet system, mm -hmm. and particularly the security uh, services. Uh, someone who. Uh, I mean, the core of it, the core of it really is the idea that the interests of the state justify any human cost. Yes. Uh, and that uh, the individuals are simply raw material for the uh, <clears throat> achievement of whatever crazy idea the political 
authorities uh, have in their heads. Uh, and that, you know, any, any uh, uh, expenditure of life is justified. I mean, blowing up apartment buildings to gain power, uh, opening fire with flamethrowers and grenade launchers on a school mm. filled with hostages, uh, as happened in 2004 in the southern Russian city of Beslan. These are our shooting down a civilian airliner, as in the case of the Malaysian airliner, mm -hmm. and of course, throwing tens of thousands of innocent Russian guys, young teenagers and, and young soldiers uh, into an inferno in 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 Ukraine for for no yeah it's very reason. interesting I, I was listening today to the to to um Zanny Minton Beddoes from the Economist interviewing Zelensky and Zelensky used a wonderful phrase of um, Russian soldiers being thrown thrown like pieces of wood into the furnace of a locomotive yes of course and that's exactly what's happening and that's that's typical <clears throat> for you know this this the, the, their own ideal uh, idolization of power and obsession with power. Uh, is justified by uh, a, a frame of mind which is inherited from the Soviet Union, in fact, to a certain extent, even from the Tsar's period, that the individual doesn't matter. What matters is the state mm. and, uh, and the objectives of the state. And the, the objectives of the state are not subjected to any kind of moral evaluation. It's just that, you know, this is the state, and therefore, of course, it goes without saying that what it wants and its interests are more important than what any individual would want. And who represents the state? Well, whichever gang of thieves is able to take over the mm. machinery. And David, so with, with, it, with Putin, do, do you think, is, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is he, the state mm -hmm. is me? I mean, is it, he, he, has a, he has taken that system that you described and the intelligence system, the FSB and the KGB, but turned it very strongly into a personality cult as well. You know, it's got a, it's got well, the I urging mean, the of one of thing is the personality cult is, of course, a way to reinforce uh, his power mm. and uh, reinforce the subordination of people to the state because uh, he 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 turns himself. I mean, and he's an extremely unprepossessing person. And he always was. I mean, he's devoid of charisma. But of course, you know, after gets years you a 15 of practice, year sentence to say such a thing, doesn't it, David? Well, I'm not there any longer. That's the thing. I'm I'm safe in Washington D.C., or I would be safe if I were in New Zealand. And we, but but I'm not in Moscow, so I don't have to worry about yeah. that. But the the reality is that this, on the one hand, of course, it's a form of megalomania. But on the other hand, uh, needless to say, uh, it's a way of of exploiting the weaknesses of Russian people who very mm. much personalize power, and. Uh, and uh, uh, and romanticize it to some extent, and in that way, uh, reinforce their their subordination. Yeah, I'm interested, David, in what you, you just said because we we can. It's too easy sometimes, particularly in media, maybe to to be glib about this and describe Putin as a megalomaniac or a nuts or anything like this. He he's it, he's it seems to me that he is an entirely rational actor, given where he comes from and given the edifice that he's built from which there's. Nothing. There's no no possibility to climb down from. Well, the uh, rational actor in you know in invading uh, Ukraine. I, for example, at the uh, you know right up until the last minute, 
when I was asked by Ukrainian television what I thought was going to happen, I, I thought that this was blackmail and not an invasion mm. Mm. Uh, because it didn't make sense to me. It would destabilize uh, Russia, which is what's in the process of happening. I made this mistake before. I thought that uh, Gorbachev during the perestroika period would not proceed with the complete discrediting of the Soviet ideology mm-hmm. because that would lead to the fall of the Soviet Union and he would lose his own position. Turns out that uh, uh, I, I, I think I for- forecast his fate better than he did. Yeah, but uh, you know I underestimated him or something. In any case, same. As same with with Putin now. I mean, both Putin Putin uh, has embarked on a on on a a course which is not only destructive but self destructive. Now the question is, will he be able to save himself? Uh, but uh, he's he he has created for himself and for the 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 group of people around him a a really dire threat to their to yeah. their yeah. Conti- think continuing the ability to rule. Do you think that's because that's he underestimated something they the response? Should have foreseen. Do you think it was I'm because sorry, he under, underestimated the response? Oh, the yes, response? he did. And I think that, that Gorbachev also now probably uh, uh, overestimated his ability to keep the situation within, you know, under his control. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, so in that sense, you know, on the subject of rationality, uh, you know, it could be that he's surrounded by sycophants. I'm sure he is, uh, like any r- ruler who, who's in power for 22 years. And he's receiving uh, inf- information that is carefully prepared to cater to his, mm-hmm. his own wishful thinking. And uh, he, that world of the Russian leaders, of the Russian you know, security services is delusionary world. I mean, these are people who live in a world of, you know, they, they, that's a world of phantoms, mm. uh, of that's external kind of, threat. I think I just external. had this image of spy versus spy from mad, from mad magazine. <laughs> you remember them? Um, yeah, I remember that. You're, you, you're dating yourself. Peter. Yes, I know. I know. I do that every, every time on the show, I date myself despite wearing my, my groovy uh, Zelensky t-shirts. Um, David, you, you just we, we explored uh, the kind of man Putin is, and one of the incidents that your um, your your book on him, um, the, the the less you know, the better you'll sleep, describes in more detail than most other, or I think, than any other author has gone into, is the circumstances of the blowing up of several apartment buildings um, in Russia, and then the discovery very very soon after that it may have been a bit of a put up job in fact, by the FSB rather than the Chechens who were compelled to take responsibility or uh, who were against whom responsibility was directed. Can you describe that a little bit? This is how Putin came to power. He would never, there would be no Putin as president of Russia without the bombing of the buildings. Uh, In 1999, uh, on the verge of the of new, you know, scheduled new elections for the president, because under the constitution, Yeltsin could only hold power for two consecutive terms. Uh, the discontent with Yeltsin was massive. I mm-hmm. mean, his popularity rating was 2%, according to polls. 
uh, and uh, same for Putin. When Putin was nominated to be the, the when he, he named Putin as prime minister, Yeltsin, who was the fifth prime minister in a year and a half, mm. the, the choice was, was ridiculed in the Russian press. And you know, Putin had never had a political career. Uh, he was un, largely unknown in the country. He was the head of the FSB, which is the security service. Mm. Uh, he was a very unprepossessing person physically. He didn't speak well. Uh, but uh, and on September eighth, in a private in a conversation with Bill Clinton, uh, Yeltsin said, "Well, the, the, Putin is going to be the next president. Uh, you're going to get along with him. He's going to be very good for U.S.-Russian relations. He's a good man, very solid, so on and so forth." Well, the question arises, how in the hell yeah. could a person who had a 2% popularity rating uh, be so sure that he could determine the next president? And afterwards, in subsequent years, Yeltsin, to avoid responsibility to a certain extent, said, you know, the one big mistake I made was in my choice of a successor. Mm. He, he didn't understand how, how the, you know, the, his, his own use of language you know, Russia is supposedly a democratic country in which the people decide who the next president is, not Yeltsin, yeah, let alone the, someone yes. who was as hated as he was. But the next day on uh, uh, September 9th, the day after that uh, call, you know, the, the building in Moscow on Guryanova Street was blown up. And then came the other apartment. What kind of building bombs. was it, David? Just, just describe it. Because I was just, you, just you, you know, workers. Of the few I, that really I, deals with this. Yeah, it, it was a kind of a fray. Yeah a frame apartment block, uh, pan, a panel, you know, concrete panel. Mm -hmm. uh, this in, in a really poor and uh, downtrodden, rather downtrodden workers section of Moscow. You know, absolute typical, you know, just workers chosen at random. Yeah. And, and, as, and this was true of the other buildings that were blown up. Uh, I mean, if Chechens were to make a choose a target, it would be logical for them to choose a government building, not Absolutely. Uh, not not the not a, a building in which ordinary people live. So uh, then suddenly, this unknown, virtually unknown, Putin was everywhere, and promising bloody revenge against the terrorists who murdered innocent mm. Russian people mm. in what in their in in their sleep blew up their. And that those build those bombings created terror. Uh, uh, and um, and they, they so just, just you know, to the, and then, they, they then, then this was used the, as an excuse to start yeah. a new war in Chechnya because the Chechens were accused. They said they had nothing to do with it, but no one listened. Mm. There was a, a new, uh, you know, all of the aggressivity of the population was redirected from the plutocrats who had been stealing the, the country's wealth for, for almost a decade to the Chechens. And uh, Putin, as the leader of that effort, uh, which at first was successful largely through the use of banned weapons, uh, suddenly emerged as the leading candidate for president. Mm. Uh, and he was elected president. And of course, and that Chechen, everything. Sorry, that, sec that second Chechen war also presaged yeah. the kind of tactics that we're seeing deployed in Mariupol. Absolutely. And in uh, Aleppo, 
No, and not just the second Chechen war, the first mm. Chechen war mm. as well. And that's how Russia wages war. Is standing back, standing back and, and annihilating cities. Well, especially uh, uh, in situations in which they're having trouble fighting and, you know, urban fighting against an enemy that, that, that knows the city uh, and is particularly in a situation in which now they have very effective uh, weapons for destroying armor is a high cost proposition. It's yeah. easier just to blast, you know, just to level the place. And, so, so David, uh, this is this is somebody though who you know if you think about that apartment bombing and the idea you know we talk about false flags it's become unfortunately a, a very kind of conspiracy theory theory thing. You then you've also got people like George Bush saying that they looked into his soul and you know the sort of thought that they could do business with him and all of that. Yeah, um, well, they're, they're, the Russians are good manipulators and they're they're good at. I mean, they 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 had studied, but they knew that Bush was a born again Christian, and they had studied his reactions. Uh, they did the same thing with Jimmy Carter. They tried to do it with other other Western leaders, with largely with a great deal of success, except with Reagan. Mm. Uh, and uh, this is because uh, uh, they they know which buttons to push when it comes to manipulating Western opinion. They mm. do that very well. They, I mean, in part because, but it's also a question of our superficiality and our lack of seriousness. You we know, don't you understand. Mean, you mean that we don't bother to take to take the place seriously. We we look at it in a we don't like b- way, bother or? to learn about it. We don't bother to make the the intellectual effort, and, and this is practically universal. We had, you know, I Boris Nemtsov, who was murdered mm. in uh, February two thousand fifteen. He and I talked to a guy who was getting ready to become a top advisor in the Obama administration. And we tried, we told him that, 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 that Putin is dangerous. He's not a partner. He, the, the, the proper policy is deterrence, mm-hmm. not partnership. And uh, he, they then launched uh, this reset policy, so-called. Uh, which was based on the idea that all the problems in U.S.-Russian relations were, of course, the fault of not Putin, but of George W. Bush. Uh, you know, the, the, the level is uh, of, our, of our government officials, our, who, some of whom pretend to be Russia experts, mm. is terribly low. And that's not that's not surprising. They made their careers in a bureaucracy. They don't really know Russian society, and they and they're career driven and cliche driven, uh, and don't want to make the kind of in depth intellectual yeah. effort that understanding Russia I, requires. I, I find the idea of a cliche driven diplomat rather worrying. But of course, this is an excellent time to promo my excellent um, column about George F. Kennan. Um, the most important diplomat of the 20th century in the United States, other than Henry Kissinger, in this month's North and South. Um, David, you talk about somebody, you're talking about somebody who's clearly prepared to do anything. Um, maybe describe also the Mos- Moscow theater, theater incident and the Beslan massacre, because you, you referred to them in effect, effectively using flamethrowers and, um, and rockets to supposedly take out Chechen terrorists who were holding school children hostage. Took out quite a few of the children too. Well, the the, the story that's the Beslan school. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, the theater siege was in two thousand and two, mm. 
And I mean, in both the case, both the theater siege in 2002 and the Beslan hostage taking in 2004, the people who who led these operations were had, uh, you know, in many cases uh, had, had had been in contact with the Russian security services, or had been recently released from Russian prisons mm-hmm. on the verge. In the case of Beslan. One day they're with they they're released from prison. The next day they're they're taking over a school, uh, and so in in both cases and the in the case of the theater siege, the Chechens for months prepared, uh, and in this case it was they were Chechen terrorists, but they were they had prepared this operation. They had moved under wartime conditions. Mm. a veritable army into the center of Moscow to take over a theater. Uh, I mean, that, that just, and they, they had connections while they were training with uh, a Russian intelligence. They couldn't have done that if they hadn't been set up. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and then, and the further proof of that was when the, you know, after the, the, the theater was so-called liberated with the help of a, of a, of a lethal gas attack uh, and with, Dozens of terrorists unconscious, they were all executed. Mm. Uh, the better not to do any excess talking. <laughs> excess talking, I like that. Now, the, before we, we have some um, great questions from our audience, but let, let me ask one question as we introduce that. It's, it's one in your book, um, it was a long time ago and it never happened anyway. You, to me, posit the theory that until Russia deals with what happened almost like a truth and reconciliation commission with the gulag, with the great terror, with the history of communism, that it will never and have the opportunity. And post-communism. Yeah, and will never have the opportunity. Could you explain that theory a little bit? Because I think we sometimes think of it as, you know, just a country of strongmen, if you like. Well, here's the point. I mean, you know, we, we were talking earlier about uh, Putin and his character. Uh and the idea that this is someone you know who who thinks like any, like a lot of people in Russia, who aspire to power. I mean, Yeltsin had the same mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, you know, for the sake of power, uh, the individuals are raw material. Yeah. Well, uh, by 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 memorializing the victims, by treating them as 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 if their fates had meaning. Uh, you work against that mentality. You, I mean, it, it, the the adequate commemoration of those who died and a truthful rendition of the country's history is really essential uh, in order to neutralize and and e- even uproot this destructive mentality, according to which you, so it's so it's know, not something the that individual be- is. It's not something necessarily rush, a Russian characteristic. It's a characteristic of characteristic of choices that have been made, choices that have been made not to pursue that path. Well, uh, this is uh, the, the nature of Russian society is such at the present time uh, that 
that that people do not insist on this. They don't mm. see the moral value of it. But there are there are conditions under which they could be led to see the moral value. And in fact, there have been times in the past in which they did mm. when there was during the perestroika period when history, for example, and an adequate depiction of history and truthful depiction of history was the driving force to a certain extent behind the anti-communist yeah. uh, revolution. Interesting. Um, uh, David, we have some great questions from, from people. So let, let me ask you a few of those. And we, we're going to try sure. to let you go a little bit after the half hour, if that's all right. So, and, and this the question that you, you were just raising, discussing about the philosophy behind Putin is kind of interesting because Craig Dallimore asks, to what extent does Alexander Dugan, the political philosopher, influence Putin? Oh, I don't think he influences Putin. I think that that's just, you know, you know, just some uh, decoration for, you know, the, 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 he needs, uh, you know, the people like that provide post facto justification uh, for what they're, you know, what the authorities are going to do anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Pat Clark asks, is it true that Putin agreed not to hold Boris Yeltsin to account for all the money he had stolen from the government? Well, his Boris Yeltsin's family, for the most part, yeah. Uh, well, Yeltsin also, I mean, the Putin himself stole a lot. Mm. When Putin came, came to power, you have to remember, there were two criminal cases that were active against him. And so Yeltsin chose somebody to be president of the country who was under investigation in, for, for, for corruption in two, two very important cases. Uh, the, um, it was a deal, of course. Uh, Putin protects Yeltsin and the Yeltsin family. Mm. And he, you know, he, he goes along with the apartment bombings and the killing of hundreds of innocent people. And, uh, he, he gets unlimited power. Okay. So G asks, what do you think Putin's goal with Ukraine is? It looks to me like the Russians are simply trying to destroy the physical country rather than take the place over. I think originally they just wanted to, you know, they wanted to dominate it, install their own government and kind of uh, run the place, you know, de facto. But that's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, Putin is, is, keeps saying that everything's going according to plan, or he, he, he was saying that. Of course, he never said what the plan was. Yeah, uh, it's, and yeah we, no... we have to be careful to, to, to not ascribe a plan to him. Although, did you, did you find it interesting, as I certainly did, that the U.S. was seen to be so effective on Kremlin intelligence and pre-military planning and leaked it, you know, within, with sort of almost in real time in the run up to this? Yeah, I think they've got some pretty decent sources, but uh, the um, you know it's a murky world. Uh, you know how how reliable are those sources in every respect? I mean, yeah. they talked about things that the that that that. Um, the Russians were planning supposedly, for example, false flag attacks. Mm -hmm. Well, that that they may or may not have been planning that. That may have been, you know, the informant's best guess. Yeah. Uh, 
there's you know uh, in any case they are certainly trying to show and uh, are showing to a degree that they have a they have they have good sources of information yeah which is kind of david a uh, mr bernard hickey asks can you ask david if the west could have could have dealt with putin differently to avoid the war such as not expanding nato up to the borders yeah they could have definitely avoided the war this was an avoidable war and uh, they could have dealt with uh, Putin very differently, but expanding NATO had nothing to do with it. I mean, they needed to uh, to react to his crimes, mm -hmm. and they should have done that from the very beginning. Well, first of all, they should have reacted to the apartment bombings. And uh, Madeleine Albright, who was the Secretary of State, was very deceptive when she was asked about the apartment mm -hmm. bombings in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in February before Putin was elected. So even before he was elected, we were not ready to raise this fundamental moral issue. And they were well informed. Our government was well informed. I talk about this in uh, The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, mm -hmm. because I, you know, on the basis of documents that I got you know, under the Freedom of Information Act, it was clear that the embassy was told that these bombings were at the very least, suspicious and and probably a uh, you know uh, a threat to the to, to the future of the country. And, and, and then they, I mean sorry. the I mean I wrote I wrote into you know after the Malaysian airliner was shut down that all the Russian aircraft should be banned from all world airports. Mm -hmm. Had we done that, we wouldn't have a war. Had we reacted to the to the uh, annexation of Crimea with the kind of sanctions we're at, we're imposing now, uh, we wouldn't have a war. Why, why didn't uh, this we? was I mean, kind was of the message that, I was trying? Yeah. this? Why, why didn't we, David? Why we. didn't we? Why didn't we? Uh, because we uh, uh, are very superficial, first of all, and uh, we, second of all. Uh, choose the path of least resistance. And we are, uh, of course, uh, always looking over our shoulders at the reaction of an uninformed public opinion. And mm -hmm. there's no attempt. And since we ourselves don't know anything about the, you know, the nature of the country we're talking about, we can't inform that opinion. And uh, so we do what's easiest and we ignore well-founded warnings and the result is that other people pay the so price. So now that we are where, where we are, not that I, I hate that expression, but now that we are in the position we are, Mr. Hickey asks also, what can or should the West do now? Is it what it's doing? Well, for one thing, the, the, now that the situation is obvious, the West is behaving, uh, in, in fact, in a, in a, a pretty decent manner. Uh, now, there, there, uh, there are various... Um, how can I put it? Uh, claims and counterclaims about you know weapons that could be provided and aren't mm. being provided, beginning with those uh, old Makes. you know former Soviet airline air, airplanes and to go you know and then and moving into you know into to, to other areas. Uh, clearly, we should do the maximum, but what's really important, of course, is to choke off re revenue for yeah. oil and gas. Now. If uh, that's the Europeans would, you know, we, we basically have to organize the whole of the West on, an, on a war footing in order to do that. And we have to forget, you know, and obviously that some of the oil and gas resources 
that are that rest unexploited in North America will have to be uh, yeah, it's exploited. a very interesting. That, I mean, it's interesting when I mean, we're tapping oil reserves instead of uh, uh, you know opening up new pipelines, but uh, but you know we're in a situation which I understand how people feel about global warming and all this. Although I mean, I don't really understand it myself, but right now you have a war situation and this takes precedence. Paul Kennedy asks um, your opinion, really, of course, again, as, as Mr. Putin's chief psychiatrist based in Washington, DC, how prepared psychologically do you think Putin is to actually resort to a nuclear option? Uh, well, you know, as uh, uh, I, my 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 answer to that is based in part on hope, of course. But uh, uh, my experience with Russians over many years is that uh, they use this threat as a strategic tool in order mm-hmm. to deter. Western powers from using their full strength. Um, so I, I think that that uh, he would not use nuclear weapons. But on the other hand, if he sent, I think it would depend on if he sees a threat to his 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 personal power and his personal security. Under those circumstances, all bets are off. Yeah, interesting. And David, one last one. um, Trump. How did Trump, the Trump presidency, his canoodling almost literally with Putin uh, in Helsinki and so on, how did that set us up for this or did it? You know, is it irrelevant or, you know, was that part of perceiving the West as weak? I think what the key thing was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, mm. uh, rather than the behavior of either Trump or Biden. Uh, the uh, I mean that that w- the spectacle of abandoning a nation in that way and its people, when per- you know when maintaining a military presence there would have been possible and at rel- at, you know on. At relatively little cost, can't say it would have been no cost, yep. but I mean, but but an arm. We have a huge military establishment, and it's it has certain responsibilities. Mm. That's why we have it. Interesting. Uh, so that was it. I mean, as far as the Trump, I mean, everyone in the states, of course, uh, wants to blame either Trump or Biden, depending on whose side they're on. Uh, but the reality is this was sort of bipartisan stupidity. The, the, the both parties supported the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, Trump began it and Biden expedited it. And uh, no one, it never seems to have occurred to anyone that we had an obligation to that nation and that our credibility was at stake. Mm. And that kind of spectacle, I think, plus Plus the uh, the analogy. I mean, the fact that they launched this campaign while Biden was president, and they didn't do it while Trump was president. Mm, mm, exactly. That is an uh, is an indication of the fact that they considered Biden to be particularly weak. Yeah. As for Trump, you have to bear in mind. I know that that despite the canoodling, Trump took you know when it came down to actual concrete decisions, he made 
you know much better decisions than 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 certainly Obama and uh, and uh, uh, and Biden in some ways because uh, Biden was part of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Remember, we have to remember. I mean, if people if Trump is so hated that people find it difficult to look at the facts with any degree of objectivity. Uh, and, but the reality is that it was the Obama-Biden administration that denied uh, the critical weapons yeah, to in Ukraine Crimea. that they are that they are now using so effectively. And it yeah. was Trump, yeah. awful, terrible, monstrous Trump, who authorized those weapons. Trump did a number of things. I mean, he was the one who gave the order for the for, for the destruction of a group of Russian mercenaries in Syria who challenged mm-hmm. the U- U.S. and and the, and he also retaliated against chemical weapons use and he killed uh, Soleimani, the the yeah, which was Iranian which had terrorist. been a red line for for, for for Obama, which he chose not, he chose not to not to recognize. Yeah, so him. I mean, all of that yeah. would have made. So would they have a no? Had Trump been the president? Would the uh, invasion have taken place? Who knows? You know, we don't know. But Trump was a more, uh, you know, for all of his, you know, his stupidities on the diplomatic front, when it came to making concrete, you know, he's enough, probably enough of a hoodlum himself that he recognizes (laughs) another hoodlum. And uh, uh, so, so, I mean, the situation is actually more complex than the than the, the 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 American politics would would lead you to believe. Uh, it was kind of a perfect storm. We had the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Then we had Biden as president. Biden being a person who all is during his whole career has 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 made one misjudgment after another. Yeah. He opposed the raid, for example, that that destroyed Bin Laden, and he you know. Uh, he's very much a prisoner of American domestic politics. Mm, so interesting. Uh, that that may have set the stage. Would it have been different if Trump had been in office? Well, it's a kind of an empty, uh, an that's empty piece of speculation. Partisans in the U.S. love to talk about, but yeah, exactly. it doesn't have any meaning. We, we don't do those kind of talking head conversations here, David. It's all it's all facts, facts, facts with us. David, thank I'm you so sorry, much. We're for very that. serious. Just t- tell us about your 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 latest collection of writing. Just quick, very quickly. Tell us what the title of that one is and what's in it. Well, you like these titles. I do. This is called Never Speak to Strangers and Other Writing uh, from Russia and the Soviet Union. And it's a collection of my articles of over 40 years of writing about uh, that country. Excellent. So I think if we see a spike of sales from New Zealand, you know that um, our well, podcast I hope is even we're more influential to. than yeah. we think. We, are, we, need, we, need, we need to inform people in New Zealand. And uh, uh, that's a good way to do it. I David, think. thank you so much for, for joining us. It's, it's well after 11.30 uh, at night in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. And I know Bernard wants to thank you as well. Thank you very much, David. I've, I've, I'm, um, I'm really, uh, I really appreciate you, you, t- you coming on and, and using the word hoodlum. Uh, which, which yes, I, yes, <laughs> I loved, and also I've made. A uh, I was, of- I was accused of being a hoodlum myself, by the way, by the <laughs> Russians. But that was a long time ago. It was the Soviet period. Listen, I've got a question. Though. What's the name of the broadcast? The podcast. It's, What's the bird? It's, it's it's called the Kaka K A K A, and it is a uh, New Zealand's most loved and intelligent parrot. 
and right. we'll send you. We'll send that, that Dave uh, Bernard will send you a link and also a uh, probably a free subscription to his. Should you want to find out about living costs in New Zealand? Yes, we do. And, and also, and you're, you're welcome. You're welcome to come. It would be lovely to have you. We'd buy you a beer and a lovely, um, a lovely New Zealand coffee. I mean, uh, well, with with Peter there, and yep. uh, and now now that I've met you, I would love to go to. To New Zealand, we'll have to set it up somehow. Well, Bernard will set yeah. up an inter a, a, a conversation with Jacinda Ardern, and the Prime Minister, as well. Yeah, yeah, and and also we, <laughs> I've made a point of putting the links to the Amazon um, uh, uh, pages for those two books in there, oh, and um, uh, I, I really appreciate your time, David. Thank you so so much. Thanks, Thank David. You. We'll see you later. We're, we're going to talk about New Zealand stuff now, so we'll we'll leave you alone. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. So long. Cheers. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, uh, Peter. Well, he's I a great guy. You know, he's a very languid yeah. guy. You know, if, if I were him, I definitely had a, have a couple of gins um, in my in my belly by the time that I started doing an interview at uh, uh, eleven o'clock at night in uh, Washington time. But thank you very much, everybody yeah. who, who submitted those questions as well. And I'm sorry if I didn't get to all of them. No, and and what I learned out of that was that um, a lot more about the 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 history of Putin and how he came to power uh, and how many problems there were right from the start that perhaps should have been picked yeah. up by the West. And also the, the, the little comments he made at the end about um, how Trump, for, for, for all his bad press <laughs> and in the rest of the world, accidentally on purpose maybe made a couple of good decisions, particularly arming the Ukrainians with yeah. um, those missiles, which seems to have made a huge difference. Yeah, but don't and let's not forget that he held that, held that money in in escrow for a while in order to find out whether they would um, yeah. dish the dirt on, on Biden's <laughs> son. Shall we move yes. to incredibly important news such as Transmission Gully Burner, which I, I am really tired of, but um, you've actually <laughs> found an extraordinarily interesting angle on it. Yeah, well, Transmission Gully, for all of those people outside of Wellington and... Um, it's Wellington's first motorway, right? Yeah, but you lived in Wellington at some point. You must have. have been desperate to get the hell out of it and must have thought, gee, if only I could uh, drive through that, that gully that we can see there, um, everything would be much better. No, but, no, no. Uh, I just took my motorbike at incredibly high speed and drove, you know, drove up <laughs> to eat the wire apple or um, up to Paikokariki. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it is a particularly dangerous road, that, that side road. And I, I remember talking to an emergency care nurse from uh, Wellington Hospital who said that once that road had been properly uh, separated so that you couldn't actually drive across the other side of the mm. road, there was a wire barrier, uh, the number of, uh, of very bad head injuries and um, people having to be helicoptered into Wellington Hospital from that road dropped substantially. Mm. So it's, a, it's, a, it's good news that it's there and it is a massive project. But the point I was um, keen to you, you've, you've make... drawn a connection between a road building program and housing. Yeah, no. I mean, in New Zealand, everything, everything is always about housing, and and um, about the connections between public infrastructure and the value of land around it. I mean, it's a perfectly intuitive thing to to realise that um, unless you can actually drive or take a train or uh, uh, teach your kids or have a hospital anywhere near where you live, the value of that uh, property and that land isn't very valuable. Mm. And so, of course, everyone wants the bigger motorway, the fancier hospital, the, the better schools near them. And if you can get someone else to pay for it, that increases the value of your land. The point I was trying to make is that when we spend money on public infrastructure, 
the public benefits of that are essentially captured in the value increasing of land that is adjacent to or at the end yeah. of and there's that no way to extract that. you know there's no way to extract that value and uh find out find out a way to you know to way to share the value that's created so there. if a piece of public infrastructure is put into uh, uh, an area then the value of that land and the capital rises and it's captured back by the state in the form of capital gains tax however um, i i but no capital gains tax here and it actually helps explain why national has been so keen on motorways, particularly over the last uh, decade. Um, and because it is a, you know, they're very useful things for a lot of people, and particularly people who desperately need to get around, um, get their kids around, go to, go to school, go to work in their car, maybe a cheap car, um, it's all very good. But of course, the real benefits that are captured, the uh, crystallization of the benefits of those, that public infrastructure is straight into the value of land, particularly bare land that can be developed for residential and commercial property. And the value of the increase in the value of that land is not taxed at all. And in, interestingly, in other countries, uh, what, what you see is what they call a value capture uplift rate. So this is where the local government and the state government yeah. Well, Funny enough, I was well, thinking this question the other day about the about the new motorway north north of Auckland to Walkworth, and thinking how stupid I had been not to not to think about what that would do to the to land values, which I'm sure are exploding all the way along the Matakana Peninsula and and all the way up to Wellsford. Yes, I mean this is the New Zealand way, I and mean, if you go to provincial New Zealand and you think back over the past, the people who have got the wealthiest and have managed to get those wealth, that wealth in a, in a tax-free way and often in a leveraged way are the ones who work out from their, um, their you know, research and connections to councils and the governments where these new routes are going. So what, one of the interesting side um, issues for uh, uh, councils in New Zealand is that there's often a very interesting strain of property development and uh, landowners who get onto councils as much to know where the next road is going first. Mm, absolutely. No, no, that, no. I, can... I, I, yeah, this is just what I'm going to ask you and what I hope is an amusing and actually also quite focused question. Michael O'Brien in the, in the Q&A just asked why, why it isn't a, a toll road. Yeah, well, there was, it was considered to put a toll road onto Transmission Gully uh, early on in the process. But, of course, the moment you do that, you're effectively um, uh, making people pay for a road which you could argue they've already mm -hmm. paid for and of course New Zealanders hate paying tolls and uh, there is a one uh, or two toll roads there's one just north of Auckland which I think mm -hmm. you've, you will have driven, driven through yes, and we've all and, and occasionally forgotten to pay, to, which is irritating yep. we always fail to pay that one and I mean tolls I mean we've all used them um, on the continent in Europe uh, and they do pay for things but for a, New, for a New Zealand public, they are political poison. And um, if you can get the public at large to pay for the road and then everyone to use it, then everyone's happy. And uh, not just the drivers, but also the trucking companies. Bernard, in all of this, I'm, I'm reminded of the totally wonderful Roman Polanski film, Chinatown, starring Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. With the famous scene in it where Roman Polanski's nose get cut, gets cut by a very sharp knife, which always makes you, you know, you you kind of cringe even now when you when you see it this is really a chinatown kind of situation where instead of the you know this is this is not the um orange groves of california and the you know subsidies for water and then the tearing up of tram lines for roads 
but it is a similar, you know, imbalance in the the, the ability to benefit from this. Because also, and also, if I can just bring in an excellent joke I made, if I even if I may say so, about a couple of times ago, about this is why why the cost of living is up so high, right? Cost of living is mm. up a lot. <laughs> in fact, that was one of the prompts for the story. I was uh, went out to the transmission gully uh, ribbon cutting. And it suddenly occurred to me as I was driving through there, that there were a lot of signs for new property development. Yeah. And your cost of living joke uh, suddenly made me think, hang on a minute, why don't I try and work out how land values have increased mm. over the last six years since the approval of the road? And I did some um, uh, fancy pants analysis of the land valuations for the uh, Kapiti District Council uh, area and also the Horafenua District Council area, which includes the cost of living, and um, and worked out that over that period since the approval of the road, land values rose in that area by seven point eight billion dollars, and in fact. Uh, the surplus, the amount of extra land value appreciation in those areas relative to the rest of uh, the country and Wellington was about $2 billion. So in effect, what you have is the government spending $1.25 in current dollars to build this road, but the benefits are crystallized into a $2 billion increase in the value of the land yeah, uh, at, at either end of it. But Bernard, Craig Linkhorn raises a tax question, which is which is your you know other another area of your extreme extremely um, uh, wide range that might national and labour gang up and legislate so that council rates are raised from land values rather than capital values to dissuade current land hog behaviours. Yeah, I mean this is a really interesting point. Um, in fact, the government doesn't need to legislate; councils can do it on their own at the moment. And what we're going to see in the council elections later this year is some debates about land value capture, because ultimately it's the councils that have to put these uh, special rates in place. There's nothing to stop them from doing it right now. And in fact, in parts of the country, and in particular Queenstown, there have been versions of this already used to force developers to uh, uh, offer affordable housing types with developments. And uh, we've already seen uh, National say they wouldn't bring in these value capture uplift rates. And there are quite a few of the candidates uh, on the centre right for the Auckland mayoralty who've also said they won't do it as well. They see it as a, a tax grab. But of course, if you're one of the landowners along the new Auckland light rail route, or around the new stations around there, you are uh, licking your lips at the prospect of seeing $16 billion worth of government money helping to increase the value of your land. You don't want to miss out on that unearned tax-free capital gain. Isn't that, just so the market, isn't, this, isn't that just the market responding to effective economic signals from the government? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It makes sense. But when to, all boats rise, I, Bernard, we know, we know it'll, just, it'll trickle down and that all boats rise. Ah, but that's the problem, you see. Um, the only boats that rise and where the value of the increased um, height of the sea goes to the owners of the land. And uh, I've got some pretty pointed questions to ask the likes of Christopher Luxon and mm. others about why they would uh, effectively allow unearned um, uh, capital gains to go to people who, who are not paying for the... Um, the extra infrastructure that's going in place. This is going to be paid for by the taxpayers of New Zealand, largely. And that is um, uh, a point I'm <laughs> going to put to Mr. Luxon when I get a chance. Now, Labour... Are, we getting, to, are we getting to wind him up on our podcast? I do hope so. 
yeah, no, we, we that's I've got the the request in there, and uh, we hope to have him on the hoon at one point or another. We've already had the deputy leader, lead, leader um, yeah, Nicola Willis, who, who put maybe on we a have show. to have a glass of gin for him. Absolutely. Um, now, let, let, me, let me ask you another political question because on the way in here, when I when I when I asked you whether we could defame uh, David Camp, David Seymour, um, I, I would quite like to defame David David Seymour. He's usually quite capable. I, I of think. Him. I think defame is an ugly verb. Yeah, I ugly would verb. Suggest, all, right, all right, take the piss I would out suggest criticize criticize aggressively. David, he's quite. He's some uh, Bernard. He's quite. Uh, Aggressive and I mean, somebody said to me the other day that the reason he's doing this is he needs to create his own space with 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 Luxon rising, the Space for Act um, squeezes. This his discovery of the idea of co-governance and uh, the in inclusion of the Treaty of Waitangi and so on in various government legislation and in government approaches, which is a forty-year development, is rather naughty. I thought to bring it up now in the way that he is. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly um, out there and loud about it. And what I think is, and, and to be fair to him, it's not the first time he's said this, and he's been pretty aggressively opposed to it, has, has, as has ACT um, through the last 20 years or so. Uh, but it is a fairly um, basic dog-whistling exercise mm. that um, actually if he had an opportunity to talk to the actual players in these co-governance arrangements, which are already in place in many in many areas, uh, for example, the Waikato River, um, uh, significant parts of uh, Auckland and, and certainly uh, on the west coast of the South Island, these co-governance arrangements uh, whereby you're seeing uh, local iwi working with councils, working with local farmers, with DOC and various others to ensure that land and, and water in those areas are properly managed and that effectively they're preserved. Um, in, in many of these places, it's been very effective. And it's a pity he hasn't sort of gone to the... Yeah, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to go... Because this is what also worries no. me, Bernard. We've talked about this, and, I, and I'm fascinated by it as somebody who's lived outside the country for a long time. I, I do think that there is a large body of New Zealand opinion who don't even know the origins of this or who've sort of been like frogs in boiling water, which is a myth, of course, in the temple. You know, it's a mythical vision of a frog. But the... Um, you know this 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 steady accretion of uh, obligations to and rights of Maori and iwi and incorporation of it into law has been happening since the 1970s. We may be at some critical inflection points or tipping points now, but this is not a new phenomenon. And I I, I worry that it's I worry that it's being created as a as a kind of bogeyman around labour. But it's actually the way New Zealand law and legislation works is is for it to accrete. Gradually, I mean, we saw Tiffany O'Regan getting the uh, New Zealander of the Year last year. Mm. You know, he is somebody who's pushed this for forty years, the steady incorporation of it into law. Um, I, I'm not yeah, sure. Do, do, do people understand that? Um, Sorry, Dara, you're about, absolutely right. But I, I, what I mean yeah. is by the the recognition of the Treaty of Waitangi in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah, but carry on. Um, I, I, well, I think it's a typically New Zealand approach to an issue, which is to try to solve a problem without making too much noise, particularly when the solution to the problem would upset a lot of people. And so over the years, we've seen some significant changes to essentially the way that we manage our resources and share governance and, of course, with the treaty settlements, uh, um, do things. But, of course, 
And the people directly involved in the process are deeply aware of the history involved and the, uh, the justice that is done with these settlements. But for the government to advertise it, and when I say the government, I'm not just talking Labour here, I'm talking national. No, no. If you look at the settlements that have been done over the last 20 or 30 years, some of the biggest and most effective and just settlements were the ones done under national, under Absolutely. Uh, Graham apparently, I mean, and Doug Chris Graham Fulton. apparently was a, was a real pioneer in this and had to shift his own views yeah. very, very significant. I just, I, I, Julian makes the point here of should it, should it though, which I, to which I assume he means, you know, should it have accrued this way and, and do New Zealanders understand and they think it's yeah. wrong? I, yeah, I, just, I, mean, I think the media, Bernard, I don't know, could, could people, people ask me too or tell me, I'm not convinced that the media has done a totally brilliant job in this. On the other hand, it's extremely difficult to report something that's happening over a 40-year period in a way that you understand the outcome, whereas the outcome is now much clearer. Is that really what's happening? That we just we can see an accrual of power at the moment? Yeah, it is a hard story to tell in a um, thoughtful and clear way that doesn't uh, push lots of buttons. And we have to be pretty upfront about it. There's a lot of uh, uncomfortable and, frankly, should be guilty people. And mm. I and many uh, multi-generation New Zealand uh, migrants feel that way. I mean, for example, uh, in the process of trying to understand uh, where I came from and what my endowments are, I had to do some research into how my family got its wealth and found that my great-grandfather was granted confiscated land after he served in the militia in Taranaki and that my grandfather was given rehab land after the First World War, land which wasn't allowed to be given to the Māori troops coming back from the First World War. Now, yes. Those are endowments that I now understand that I have and, and the unfairness of the clear unfairness and wrongness of that is something yeah, that I can't profound, undo. Wasn't it? I mean, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the inability of Māori to, to apply for those same land is, is one of the most shocking things I've read about in New Zealand. Yeah, and, and these are stories that we should know and understand. It's good to see that the history is going to be taught in a more direct way. But some of the most interesting things I learned at university was when I went out of my way to... Um, to do some New Zealand history courses in my first and second years and was totally shocked at what I learned about um, what had happened mm. uh, through those years. The outright, not just theft, but you know, murders going on, genocide that went on. And it's, it's okay to say, well, that was my forebears. I shouldn't bear responsibility for that. But as someone who lives in this country and is proud to and wants to st wants it to remain stable and peaceful and a nice place to be, we have to, and as uh, David was talking about with the wrongs that were done under the communists uh, in Russia, the road of bones and Stalin's yep. purges yep. Yep. and the and the Ukrainian um, mess, uh, you know one of the reasons Ukraine is happening right now is because Russia never really had a um, a, a, reckoning, a, a reckoning with Jesus its own history. Exactly. And yeah. New Zealand needs to do that too if we're going to get through it. And actually, you could argue we've done a lot better than most in reckoning with our history so and trying to People are going to accuse us of being a, being a bunch of liberal milk toasts, Bernard, if we're not careful. Yeah. I mean, I, I went, went, went through various periods in my um, thinking, you know, decades ago when I too was, you know, outraged. How dare this undemocratic situation happen where... 
a bunch of people who are a minority can tell me what mm. to do or uh, that that can take back the land that is mine because I paid for it. Uh, well, actually, when you look more closely at what's going on, uh, it's not fair and just, and you have to spend the rest of your life trying to come to terms with it and doing doing the right thing. And yeah, actually, interesting. Think most, most of the people who are in government and uh, with the real hands on the real levers of power understand that. But they understand, too, that there's a good chunk of New Zealand who haven't had that come to Jesus moment and will react badly and will react in a knee-jerky way and will vote on that. Interesting. Well, should we get? I think I think Bill English sometimes comes on. Uh, comes on to listen to you, doesn't he? But why don't we ask Bill whether he'd come on and have a chat about this? Because yeah, or well, Chris it, Finlayson actually. Um, yeah, yeah, or, I've heard or, he's very or, bright on the subject. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a that's a great point. People from the I suppose you could call it the centre right who on the face of it should also be blowing these um, dog whistle sounds to get votes. But this is part of the reason why ACT does it, because as you said earlier, they need to distinguish themselves from National, who are now uh, resurgent again. And uh, this is one way that they do it. And it was one way that uh, Winston Peters did it. And he had a particular um, uh, uh, fig leaf of um, defence. God, so please don't. I just had a terrible it. image of a naked Winston Peters with a fig leaf. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, um, I see we're close to the five o'clock. Yeah, just thing. can I just we, I, can we go over just a time? I, I was rather struck today by something from um, uh, Sean Pluckett's new thing, the the uh, the platform, um, saying that they're about to do an interview with with Jacinda Ardern, which I think is a great idea. But it also said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't think she'd come. No, she's coming to us, but we didn't think she would because we're not government funded. Now, can I just point out that so far you and I have not had a, a, a bite at the New Zealand on air funding. And I'd also like to say that public money is not necessarily the same as government money. So I will look forward to the platform doing that interview. But um, if there are any gin manufacturers out there who would like to support uh, Bernard and me, <laughs> we're very happy to do that rather than, rather than oh, God, Lynn, I'm so sorry. Jesus, I've been sucked in by a local fool. <laughs> oh god thank you good Mrs. good fun thank so you. it is oh i'm in trouble now Mrs. yeah yeah it's all right good. so Me too. so just to wrap it all up oh god the... i'm so i just yeah just yeah <laughs> put my, so look, shall I give, are you going to do the skateboarding dog or we'll do two of them yes i'm happy to do this skateboarding dog but if we've got two that's good yeah my skateboarding dog this week there's the great story uncovered that during the protest someone at the protest sprinkled cannabis seeds <laughs> <laughs> and into the garden now no doubt thinking they wouldn't still be there when they sprouted well um they sprouted in the last week or so and of course the local uh, um constabulary happened to notice new marijuana plants growing Excellent. in the gardens I, well, I was going to suggest that it was david seymour's stash <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would perhaps make David more interesting mm. and chilled. But uh, certainly, um, that was my skateboarding dog. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, my skateboarding dog, which is extremely tasteless, is that it would appear that Russian soldiers are uh, surrendering the Chernobyl nuclear plant, having become highly, re highly react radioactive oh, themselves. Oh no. Yeah, actually, that, that tells the story that, of David, where um, what does he get radioactive as well? He should be. No, 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 no. David pointed out that the Russian leaders are quite happy to throw their troops like um, wood chips into the fire. And yeah. uh, there the, the couldn't be much uh, better uh, instruction of that. And also for those people who are listening, thank you so much for um, coming in. But I'd recommend if you wanted to, a really good 
uh, um, download streaming session, I would recommend Chernobyl, if you haven't already seen yes, it from a couple totally of years fantastic. ago. Yes, totally fantastic. One of the best um, pieces of docudrama. The drama, you mean. Um, yeah, the docu yeah, docudrama. Yeah. Brilliant. Art. Mm. All right. Well, th thank you so much, everybody. I I'm sorry I took it on a bit longer, and I hope everybody enjoyed talking to David. Please give Bernard and, and me some feedback. Yeah. Um, thank you, Peter, for arranging the interview with David. That was really fascinating. Thank you so much. No worries. He's a lovely chap. His books are excellent. As is my, yeah, you know, stand by for my interview with him in North and South. Ah, absolutely. Kakite <laughs> know everyone. We'll see you next week. I'm Thanks Bernard very much. That was, and that was Peter Bale. And uh, that was the Hoon, the weekly Hoon on the Kaka. I still am Peter Bale. <laughs> and I'm still Bernard Hickey. We'll be back again next week. Bye, Bernard. Bye. Excellent.